Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. Our sponsors for this episode are ZipRecruiter and Dollar Shave Club. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who were actually there. Previously on Mafia. Ben Siegel wasn't a make-pretend tough guy. He was an out-and-out killer. Hollywood actually thought they saw in Bugsy Siegel a star. They, they thought that Bugsy Siegel was, you know, he, he was a mafia. He was everything that Hollywood tried to envision when they did their movies. Bugsy Siegel was a hitman, a mafia guy. They loved it. They loved him. And then all of a sudden, this news comes out that he possibly murdered somebody, and it opened their eyes. They're like, oh my god, Like you're actually the gangster. We thought you were just pretending to be. So at this point, you know, his life was ruined in Hollywood. It was just a desert town, uh, pretty empty, you know, weeds overflowing. It was not the glamorous world that he's leaving behind, but he had a vision for it and he was out to make it the next destination that he could be the king of. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was a Jewish street kid who rose through the ranks of Lucky Luciano's mob to become one of the most feared and vicious gangsters on the West Coast. But Bugsy's ego and love of the high life would get the better of him and ultimately lead to his downfall. There was a, uh, a pecking order in the mafia and the mob does not like to be screwed over. That's an absolute death sentence. It's totally unforgivable. This is Mafia. Nineteen forty-five. Ben Siegel and his volatile gangster Maul, Virginia Hill, had recently left the glitz and glamour of Hollywood behind for a ramshackle town in the middle of the desert. Las Vegas. Journalist Diana Blass. It was just a desert town, uh, pretty empty, you know, weeds overflowing. It was not the glamorous world that he's leaving behind, but he had a vision for it, and he was out to make it the next destination that he could be the king of. A Bugsy Siegel went into Las Vegas. Uh, Les Zeller was a Beverly Hills police detective in the 1980s. I believe that he had been there in the past, and it was his dream to build a casino hotel on the Strip. He thought that was an up-and-coming uh, area of making money for the Mafia. So Bugsy had a vision for Las Vegas. He wanted to bring the Hollywood glam to the desert. Siegel saw a potential gold mine for the mob and shared this vision with his childhood friend and Luciano's right-hand man and business advisor, Meyer Lansky. The question was how to build it. Ernest Volkman author of Gangbusters. That time I had a population of 12,000 people and the main street was dirt. Uh, 1931, Las Vegas had legalized gambling. But as they instantly saw, they made a mistake. The people who opened these gambling halls in Las Vegas, they didn't get it. It was like they, they thought they were still in the Wild West of the Long Branch Saloon. You could go in some of the places, sawdust on the floor, spittoons, guys in off the desert. I mean, God, it was just unbelievable. 
they both realized this is not going to bring in the kind of people that make a lot of money. We need something different, okay? And then Billy Wilkerson comes along. Good old Billy Wilkerson. Now forgotten, but Billy was a legendary Hollywood figure in the 1930s and 40s. He owned restaurants. He owned the famous Ciro's nightclub. He owned the Hollywood Reporter, which was the Bible of the industry. He also was an absolute degenerate gambler. He carried a pack of cards and dice in his pocket because he would sometimes bet up to $50,000 a day. In any event, Billy had a dream. And the dream was when he went to Las Vegas and he played in these dumps, he came up with this fantastic idea for a gambling resort. To that end, he bought 38 acres just outside of the city of Las Vegas. From the widow of a man who ran a motel there, the motel had failed. He gave her a suitcase with $38,000 and $100 bills, and she said, oh, thank you, and left. And he began to develop this, this what he called a resort casino. Problem. He ran out of money. And nobody was about to give him any money since he owed money all over the place, okay? And one night he's in Ciro's and he's talking with uh, Ben Siegel, who he knew, and he starts to tell Ben Siegel about this. Ben, his ears perked up. And he listened. Creating something like this had been a long-standing dream for Bugsy. Ever since he and Lansky happened upon a luxury gambling resort in Saratoga years earlier. And it happened in 1928. He and Lansky went into this place and they could not believe what they saw. Chandeliers, men in tuxedos, women in evening gowns, and money. Tons of money. And at that moment, they both had an epiphany. They both realized that was the future. That's where the money is. Gotta look to the future. What's the future? And these two guys' minds that beautiful, incredible, illegal casino they saw was the way to go. Now, the problem was, to achieve that dream was absolutely out of their reach at the moment. It would take a tremendous amount of money. It would take a tremendous amount of money for the payoffs to the police and the politicians to keep it going. But it's something they stuck in the back of their minds, and they were determined at some point, you know, they were going to make it happen. And now Bugsy knew that this was the opportunity he and Lansky had been waiting for. He ran, he immediately called Meyer Lansky and said, our ship has just come in. And he told Wilkerson, you know, I can help you out, Billy. I know some Eastern investors and they'll put up the money. In fact, they'll put up a lot of money. You'll be a, a partner of some sort, you know, as a minor interest. We'll develop this together with the investors. It's going to be beautiful. Billy, of course, is thrilled and excited. His dream is now going to come true. And they're going to start building this place. It's got pools. It's got restaurants and shops and a casino and a beautiful hotel. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. More after the break. Siegel wanted to borrow a million dollars from the mob to build the resort, but the mob would need some convincing. It's 
very few people outside of Lansky and Siegel shared this dream. I mean, it seemed incredible, especially there in the middle of no place. But Siegel pointed out, wait a minute, it's on the main highway from California. At the time, Nevada did not have a speed limit. So he said, people could drive here 100 miles and they could be here in a couple of hours. They're going to love it. And guess what? We've made a wonderful discovery about Americans. They love to gamble. God help us, they love to gamble. He and Lansky are absolutely convinced they have a winner. And Lansky has convinced the mob, this is well worth the investment. Let me point out what's going to happen to you. A, after we open this up, Lansky, uh, Ben has all these contacts in Hollywood, all these Hollywood stars who used to come to his house parties. He's going to get them to come. They bring in other people, publicity. The mathematical laws of, 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 of probability say the casino will win. But it gets better. We have something called the skim. Whatever money comes in, guess what? We skim off the top, put it in your pockets. You're going to make your investment a hundredfold. Trust me on this. It's on Lansky's word. Luciano was all business. The loan got approved. And in December 1945, construction began. Billy Wilkerson soon found himself being squeezed out of the picture. Very quickly, however, he gets the idea these are not partners he wants to have, particularly Siegel. Siegel shows up every day, and gradually he's taking over. And finally, there's a showdown meeting at which Siegel announces, uh, Billy, we want you to give up your interest. Bill says, I don't want to give up my interest. This is, I mean, I, this is my dream of my life. I want. Billy, either we get your interest today or you leave here in a box. Uh, well, Billy got the message real fast, left for Las Vegas, and that's the last they saw. It may not have been Bugsy's idea in the first place, but his vision for the luxury resort became increasingly lavish. It included a hotel with 105 rooms, a swimming pool, and an entertainment venue. It was going to be the ultimate gambling casino. You would have pools. You would have resort. You would have a resort atmosphere. You would have a hotel. Your every wish would be catered to. You would have restaurants. You would have shops. There would be. The point is, no reason for you to leave this resort. It's all-inclusive. And, of course, we're going to separate you from your money while you're there because most of this is going to be gambling, you see, okay? But the point is we're going to make it entertaining for you. You're going to love this. It's going to be a vacation. If we give them the opportunity, it's not so much you want the big rollers in here, they'll come to. But what we want is Mr. and Mrs. America. The people are going to come in with a spend $100, $200, and enjoy themselves, saying, oh, I had a great time. I lost all my money, but I had a great time. It was entertaining, it was great, it was fun. We just, oh, it was wonderful. If Bugsy's gamble came off, every high roller and movie star in Tinseltown would be lining up at his door to spend their money. Ben's vision was exactly Billy Wilkerson's. He simply appropriated it. It was the dream that he and Meyer had been dreaming about since 1928, when they saw that incredible, beautiful casino in Saratoga. This is it. This is going to be beautiful. And Bugsy was going to name his glitzy resort in honor of his lover, Virginia Hill. Bugsy Siegel called her 
a flamingo because of her legs, long legs. So she was his flamingo. That was one of his nicknames for her. And that's hence why he named it the Flamingo Hotel. Running a massive construction project was not Bugsy's strong suit. Just weeks after breaking ground, it became clear that Bugsy Siegel's design plans were going to cost big. Eric Desenhall, author of The Devil Himself. He now had to be a property developer. And this comes with a whole different skill set that he simply did not have. There were major problems. Uh, the first problem was Ben was impossible. That's the only way to describe it. He had these crazy ideas. Uh, he wanted palm trees. <sighs> ben, where are we going to get palm trees? We'll get them in California and bring them out here. Well, it, it, a lot of them died. I mean, it was a real problem. Uh, he got the brilliant idea. They built a moat at the front entrance. I want flamingos. Got a whole bunch of flamingos. Put the flamingos in there. Uh, ben, listen to me. Flamingos live in Florida. Do you know why they live in Florida? Because they like Florida. They don't like to live in the desert. If flamingos like to live in the desert, don't you think they'd be living in the goddamn desert? I don't give a damn. Get the goddamn flamingos. So at great expense, they had to go to Florida, buy these flamingos, put them in the moat, and of course, within three days, they all died. <laughs> and it, it was 130 degrees. I really don't think Bugsy Siegel knew exactly what he was getting into when he was building the Flamingo Hotel. I understood that everybody, the contractors, uh, uh, the vendors, everybody was taking advantage of him. He just didn't have a business sense at all. As the financial pressures mounted, the construction crew began to see how Bugsy had earned his reputation. Ben would erupt in one of his rages. And he would start to, as he often did, stop to scream and yell, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. It wasn't long before Bugsy was forced to go back, hat in hand, to his underworld investors. Because he wasn't a businessman, wasn't a builder, they, uh, they kept wanting more money for building and furnishing. And Bugsy Siegel had to go back to the mafia and mafia uh, connections asking for more money. And I think at the time he was getting like $300,000 uh, every time he asked. He came, he, he, he said, look, I need another million. I got the cost problem in the construction. Then it was another 500000 then another million, okay? Eric Desenhall. When you're asking for somebody for multiple millions in the 1940s, that was real serious money. He was in over his head. He had no idea how to build up a whole casino. So he borrowed more and more money and he got more and more over his head. The Flamingo was beginning to burn a serious hole in the mob's pocket and Bugsy was starting to ruffle feathers. The overrides were unbelievable and it went from one million to six million before it was finally finished. At the same time he was out of his depth, he was also talking to his investors very disrespectfully. He was telling them, you know what, mind your own business. You gave me the money, let me do my job, let me do it. Bugsy didn't care about anybody. He had uh, money overrides building the Flamingo. He was borrowing money from the mob back east and mob figures in other major cities, Chicago, Los Angeles. 
and he just didn't care. People were asking him, what are you spending this money on? And he basically blew him off. By 1946, six months into the Flamingo's construction, even Bugsy's main backer and longtime associate, Lucky Luciano, was running short on patience. I think they thought that it was going to cost somewhere around a million dollars, and he was already at six million dollars for this project. With his dream slipping away, Bugsy took a desperate gamble. There's more to the story after the break. He assured his investors that the Flamingo would be ready to launch just after Christmas, and he guaranteed them a gala opening night. On December 26, 1946, the Flamingo was finally ready to open its doors. The place finally opens. It's a disaster. Opening night is a disaster. One of the worst storms in 150 years blows up. Planes are grounded. All the Hollywood stars can't come. The hotel isn't finished, so people can't stay there. I mean, everything is wrong. And the grand opening day happens, and it's a disaster. The movie stars can't get there. The acts aren't there. Nobody shows up. It's raining. It is an absolute debacle. And now the boys back east are very upset because it's, you know, the deal is not paying off. And there was another storm brewing. Bugsy's boyhood friend, Meyer Lansky, and his trusty lieutenant, Moe Zedway, went over the books and discovered that part of the construction budget was missing. Lansky starts to get nervous. Lansky is not stupid, and neither is Moe Zedway. Zedway is a guy who can count. They said he has a calculator in his brain. And he realized there is no way that even all these construction extras and the craziness could account for all that money. There was only one explanation. Bugsy was skimming. Now that's a dangerous thing to do. The mob has a very strange ethos. They'll steal the pennies off a dead man's eyes, but God help you if you steal from them. And Lansky knew that if it were a fact, that Siegel was skimming, uh, he might as well put a gun to his head. That's an absolute death sentence. It's totally unforgivable. Forget it. Uh, at some point, the Chicago people who had investment in the Flamingo, they began to get a little suspicious. The mob does not like to be screwed over. Bugsy was in the mob, and when you're in the mob, the mob owns you. It's not the other way around. The uh, mob became convinced that the only explanation for all these losses at the Flamingo, these, these alleged cost overruns, somebody was stealing, and that somebody had to be Ben Siegel. They put that fact together with the fact that Virginia Hill was making frequent trips to Zurich, Switzerland, although she was not known to be fond of skiing. And from that, they extrapolated, not unreasonably. Ben was skimming and she was hiding the money in his Swiss bank account. It seemed Bugsy's celebrity and living of the high life had gone to his head. Ben Siegel came to think of himself as a breakout character. And that's a real problem, because in that world, 
there are no breakout characters. You are still a part of an organism, and it's not about you. It's about them. Unknown to Bugsy, Luciano and Lansky approached his lover, Virginia, and made her an offer she couldn't refuse. They took her aside one day and presented her with a stock choice. Either tell us what's really going on there, or you get acid thrown in your face. And at that point, she felt she had no choice but to betray the love of her life, Ben Siegel. Virginia sang and Bugsy was revealed as a brazen thief and a traitor. Bugsy Siegel was disrespecting the mob because he thought that he was above all that. He definitely forgot that there was a uh, code of conduct uh, in the mafia, and there was a, a pecking order, you might say, and Bugsy thought that uh, he was the top on both. But Bugsy's standing in the mafia as Meyer Lansky's trusted childhood friend and the man who helped Lucky Luciano rise to power, meant that even Virginia's confession did not guarantee his death. At the last minute, Lansky pleaded with Luciano to give Bugsy just one last chance. It was reluctantly granted. By May of 1947, Bugsy's glamorous vision of a gambling paradise was finally starting to pay off. But Luciano wasn't the only investor who would need appeasing. The Flamingo began turning a profit. But by that point, a lot of the damage had been done, and the Eastern Racketeers had Ben Siegel fatigue. Enough was enough. Ernest Volkman. Uh, that brought Chicago to New York, and they said, <laughs> he dies. Lansky tried everything he could for his old friend. Well, yeah, well, okay, well, maybe he took a few dollars, but we can get that back, give him a chance. Lansky did everything he could to protect him. Give him another chance. Let's get the place going. The kind of money that will come in will make all this look like penny anti-change. Don't even worry about it. But ben was on borrowed time. Was, there was no way that was gonna happen. To seal his doom, he finally reopens the Flamingo, and it's learned that they've lost $300,000. The gamblers are winning. Sedway consults with Lansky. Sedway, who can count, says there is no way a casino loses $300,000. There is no way a casino loses $30,000. There is no way a casino loses $3. They don't lose money. Why? Because every game in the casino, the house has an edge. You can't win. The best game in the house is blackjack. And the house has a six to five odds there. That's the best. A slot machine, okay? The house collects 80 cents of every dollar bet. You can't lose. How then does this place lose $300,000? There's only one answer. Ben is still skimming. And that was the end. There was a mob summit in Havana in December 1946. One of the items on the agenda is what are we going to do about that flamingo and seagull? It's a festering problem. 
At that point, they had pretty much decided that Siegel would have to go because he committed the capital crime, stole from us. Lansky said, oh, we'll give him a little more time, blah, 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 blah. But he knew it was, it was over, and he made no real defense. Soon, even Lansky would give up on his old friend. Ben had no idea he was on borrowed time. Uh, he erupted in a fight with Sedway, who was his second in command, and he was suspected of being Lansky's spy, which is exactly what he was. He was keeping Lansky informed of what was really going on there. And in a famous incident in broad daylight, he kicked Segway in the rear end so hard and knocked him clear across the room. Uh, Lansky heard about this, and he went out there. And he sat down with Ben, and he said, this has to stop. You don't ever touch Mo Segway, Segway. He's my man, he's a good man, you don't do that. That's when the break came. Uh, ben was so out of control at that point. He said, go to hell. And that was the end of that friendship that had gone on since they were teenagers. And Lansky left and realized, uh, I can't do anything. Ben is so far gone. Uh, he's so far out of touch with reality. He doesn't get it. Bugsy Siegel had lost his last ally. There was no one left to defend him from the inevitable. Ben had violated the A number one cardinal rule Thou shalt not steal from us, which is a capital crime, by the way. That was it. There's no appeal from that. There's no change. There's no, there's no nothing. It's, it's death. And it's just a question of time when they decide to do it. Bugsy Siegel didn't care about what he was doing. He was disrespecting the mob because he thought that he was above all that. He'd been a mobster for most of his life, so... He really didn't care. Bugsy had always made sure he was well protected, transforming his presidential suite at the Flamingo into a fortress. Siegel had a special suite built for himself, walls thick enough to withstand a howitzer shell, and a safe in the floor, bulletproof windows, and a trapdoor in the bottom of the closet with a set of stairs leading to a back entrance. But there was a weak point in Bugsy's defenses. Virginia Hill. She would be the one who'd lead him to his end. Les Zeller. When, uh, when I was working with the Beverly Hills Police Department, I went in to detectives in 1979. In 1980, I was assigned to the robbery homicide table. And it was my responsibility to look at and hopefully solve all the open homicides because there's no statute of limitations on homicides. And of course, one of those homicides was that of Benjamin Siegel. So I, it was my responsibility to look into that and see what I could uh, uh, uncover as far as new information to see whether I could solve it or not. It seemed to Zeller that Bugsy felt safe when he arrived in L.A. on June 19, 1947, to visit Virginia Hill. Bugsy suspected that uh, there was trouble brewing because he had a, a bodyguard contingency in Las Vegas. But when he came to Los Angeles, he came with no bodyguard. So I think that his main concern was in Las Vegas with the overrides. He flew from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, arriving in Los Angeles at about 2.30 in the morning. Uh, 
there was no bodyguards or anything else, so of course he wasn't nervous or caring about uh, having any problems because Bugsy was Bugsy and he uh, uh, ran the show and didn't care about anybody else. Ben is so far gone. Uh, he's so far out of touch reality, he doesn't get it. And it is for that reason that Ben, uh, he took no precautions. Bugsy Siegel always had a gun with him. And it tells us that he just wasn't worried about anything uh, because he had the gun for protection. And if somebody made him mad, he wasn't opposed to using it. And he kept the gun at uh, Virginia Hill's house in the bedroom, uh, 38 Special. When he arrived, he found that Virginia Hill had mysteriously left and traveled abroad. Virginia Hill, a few days before Bugsy arrived, had uh, traveled to Chicago and then on to Paris. I had heard that her purpose, or at least the purported purpose of her travel, was to look for drapes or something to do with the Flamingo Hotel. But that was her excuse of going to Paris. So it wasn't out of character for her to be gone. She didn't warn Ben. She didn't say anything to Ben. And she let what happened happen. After the break. Siegel had the keys to Virginia's 16-bedroom mansion in Beverly Hills, so he let himself in. The following evening, he went to dinner with friends. Alan Smalley, a friend of his, stopped by because they had planned to go to dinner and picked he, uh, Benjamin Siegel, Jerry Mason, and Chick Hill, the brother of Virginia Hill. Jerry Mason was uh, Virginia Hill's secretary, and they both lived in the house. And they went out to dinner to Jack's at the beach in Santa Monica. So they had a nice dinner, I assume, and uh, they came back. Uh, they made a few stops on the way back, so they didn't get back to North Linden until about uh, quarter after 10 at night. And they came into the house. Bugsy had a key, as did uh, Jerry and Chick Hill. And they, uh, they came into the house and Chick Hill and Jerry Mason went upstairs. They were gonna retire for the evening. Alan Smiley and Bugsy Siegel went into the living room which is in the south portion of the house on the ground floor, and sat on the sofa, and they were chatting. Bugsy Siegel at times was reading the uh, early edition of the LA Times. As the two men enjoyed a drink, an assassin was watching them through the window from the cover of darkness. When they returned at 10.15, the killer was probably in place, and he was uh, at the uh, next door neighbor's house, the house uh, to the south of 810 North Linden. And there was a breezeway, a carport type breezeway with some lattice work. And he had actually laid the gun, a rifle, an M1 carbine, laid the gun on the lattice work, pointed it at the window about 10 feet away where he could see Bugsy Siegel on the couch, aiming so, you know, the gun wasn't moving at all. The hitman trained his sights on Bugsy 
and made his move. About quarter to 11 that evening, uh, many shots rang out in uh, a fast order. Alan Smiley was at the other end of the sofa and he, when he heard the shots, dove down to the ground and uh, was not hurt at all. And the shots uh, hit Bugsy Siegel, two in the head and two in the upper torso. Five others missed and hit a statue and uh, picture across the room. One shot hit on the bridge of his nose on the right side and it was traveling from uh, Bugsy's right to left and when it hit the nose it caused an explosion which actually exploded his left eye out of the socket and another shot hit his left cheek area and exited through his neck and then there was two more shots that hit his upper torso uh, one ripping through his lung and, and another one that was in his upper torso also. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel's luck had finally run out. There was no witnesses. There was uh, no indications of who committed the crime. Uh, nobody claimed responsibility for it. Uh, it just had all the earmarks for a mafia hit. The uh, crime had all the telltale signs of being a mafia hit. Uh, you know, for one, there was no other reason for the hit, and it was a well-executed hit. And to this day, it's still an open homicide in the Beverly Hills Police Department. So it was a, a, uh, a well-executed hit on Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy's corpse wasn't yet cold when in Vegas, Three of Luciana's men stormed into the Flamingo to announce they were taking over. 20 minutes after Bugsy Siegel was shot, two men walked in to the Flamingo Hotel, basically saying, we're running it now. And that was a guy by the name of uh, Moe Segway and a Morris Rosen. And then about a half hour after they came in, a guy by the name of Gus Greenberg came in and started shaking hands with everybody, just uh, saying that he was the new boss. Within 20 minutes of the shooting, Sedway and two other executives stepped to the microphone at Flamingo and said, Ben Siegel is dead, we're taking over. Well, how did they know? And at the time these three men came into the uh, Flamingo Hotel, I don't even think the police had identified Benjamin Siegel as the victim of this murder yet. Well, for a moment, the roulette wheel stopped spinning, and the chips stopped dropping on the table, and the cards stopped shuffling, and the slot machine suddenly went silent, but only for a moment. And then the dice went on the table, and the cards shuffled, and the slot machines went whirring again, just as though Ben was never there. Two days after the murder, Lansky, uh, one of Siegel's minions, a, a bodyguard who never, he never really used outside the Flamingo, uh, went to see Meyer Lansky with a suitcase. And he said, uh, Mr. Lansky, I think, uh, I think this belongs to you. And Lansky opened the suitcase and there was $300,000 in it. 
And then Lansky knew for certitude what had happened. That obviously was money that Ben was stealing. And later on, and reportedly, although nobody ever proved it, Lansky was able, along with the Chicago Mob, was able to get Virginia to get that money back. And all was returned, and in return for that, it, it was, she saved her life. With his execution, the disrespect of Luciana was avenged, and the mob's $6 million stake in the Flamingo Casino was safeguarded. Bugsy Siegel acted, and well, he acted like he was the boss, and he didn't care about anybody else, and there were bosses above him, and he should have cared. Even in death, Siegel clung to the glamorous life. When Bugsy died, his funeral still had a touch of glam. He was buried in a $5,000 silver-plated casket. Uh, you know, really reminiscent of the big Hollywood lifestyle he led for many years there. But the odd part is that nobody really showed up to see it. There were uh, four people at Benny's funeral. His wife, his two daughters, and his brother, the doctor. Plus a rabbi who gave a brief prayer. And that was the end of Benny Siegel. Lansky wasn't there. Hopsis weren't there. All his Hollywood friends, none of them bothered to show up. And Benny was sort of forgotten. The mob's brutal execution of one of their own kept fearful mourners away from his rushed five-minute service. Uh, Bugsy Siegel's funeral, the uh, funeral was at gravesite, and for what I understand, there was family members only. It was probably six or seven people, and that was it. I think when Bugsy Siegel died, the people were trying to distance themselves from him. So nobody really wanted to be seen at his funeral to show any uh, allegiance to him. Ben Siegel had become too hot. A big murder of a big gangster, nobody wants their fingerprints on that. Conspicuously absent was Virginia Hill. Everybody would think that Virginia Hill would be the first in line at his funeral. I mean, they were this, these passionate lovers. They had this, this great business on the side. Uh, but she she never came, and many say it's because Bugsy left such a stain in the mob world. People didn't like him. They were happy that he was dead, and Virginia knew where her bread was buttered. She wasn't about to show up to that funeral and possibly be the latest enemy to have a hitman after her. Obviously, they're going to kill him. She she tried to commit suicide three separate occasions. Sometime after that. Everybody said that uh, she never got over it, that it pretty well destroyed her life. She married another guy. That didn't last long. She had a son. She lost all her money because the IRS took it. He didn't live to see it, but Bugsy Siegel's Las Vegas dream did finally come true. After Bugsy's death, uh, the Flamingo had some problems at the beginning, but... Uh, it seemed to take off and do fabulous. And uh, because of the success of the Flamingo, other hotel casinos also began to spring up on the Strip in Vegas. If he'd survived, 
the poor boy from Brooklyn might have ended up one of the richest men in the world. He bought 800 acres of desert near his Flamingo Resort. Do you know what that 800 acres is now? It's the Las Vegas Strip. That was part of Benny's vision. He saw it. He saw what was going to happen. That's why he bought the land. And Sin City will forever be linked with the legend of a blue-eyed, charming killer whose star burnt so bright that he thought he was above the Mafia code and out of reach of its most dangerous gangsters. Today, if you go to the Flamingo, there's a small kind of memorial plaque and very bad taste like just about everything else in Las Vegas outside the place uh, around the pool area. By rights, Las Vegas should have a giant statue of Benny Siegel, a big, beautiful statue, right smack dab in the Las Vegas Strip because without them, it would not have been. On the next episode, in the lawless days of prohibition, he stood out as the black sheep. Dutch Schultz never wanted to negotiate. He had a short temper. He was just scary and unpleasant to be around. So bad, even other gangsters loathed and feared him. You do not want to double cross this man. He's got a temper and he's perfectly happy to kill even people he's worked very closely with for years. A gangster who reveled in violence and found increasingly imaginative ways of torturing and killing his victims. Dutch Schultz got this idea that he would encase feet in concrete and dump them into the Harlem River. It was known as concrete legs. Not even his friends were safe from Dutch Schultz. This has been an Audio Boom original. Thanks to Dollar Shave Club and ZipRecruiter for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite shows. 